What the heck? What are all these chickens doing here? There you are. I've been looking all over for you guys. Aven, are these your chickens? Yeah, you know how I told you they like to have their beaks and everything. We can't have chickens in the studio. Aven, you've got to get them out of here. Sorry, Chris. They just like to be involved, you know? They love to supervise. Come along, ladies. Come on, back to the coop. Good grief. Next we'll have a bear doing comedy. Well, love is in the air. It's the time of songs, of poetry, of flowers, chocolates, and promises you don't intend to keep. I'm talking, of course, about Valentine's Day. And we have a bunch of lovely love stories for you this week. Well, stories about love, or with love in them, perhaps. First up, we have Love Returned and Unrequited from Eugene Field. Weddings and broken hearts, music and despair, laughter and tears, suitors and... Well, maybe I should just get to the story, yeah? Ludwig and Eloise By Eugene Field Once upon a time, there were two youths named Hermann and Ludwig, and they both loved Eloise, the daughter of the old burgomaster. Now, the old burgomaster was very rich, and having no child but Eloise, he was anxious that she should be well married and settled in life. For, said he, death is likely to come to me at any time. I am old and feeble, and I want to see my child sheltered by another's love before I am done with earth forever. Eloise was much beloved by all the youth in the village, and there was not one who would not gladly have taken her to wife. But none loved her so much as did Herman and Ludwig, nor did Eloise care for any but Herman and Ludwig, and she loved Herman. The burgomaster said, Choose whom you will, I care not. So long as he be honest, I will have him for a son and thank heaven for him. So Eloise chose Herman. And all said she chose wisely, for Herman was young and handsome, and by his valor had won distinction in the army, and had thrice been complimented by the general. So when the brave young captain led Eloise to the altar, there was great rejoicing in the village. The beaux, forgetting their disappointments, and the maidens, seeing the cause of all their jealousy removed, made merry together. And it was said that never had there been in the history of the province an event so joyous as was the wedding of Herman and Eloise. But in all the village there was one aching heart. Ludwig, the young musician, saw with quiet despair the maiden he loved go to the altar with another. He had known Eloise from childhood, and he could not say when his love of her began. It was so very long ago. But now he knew his heart was consumed by a hopeless passion. Once, at a village festival, he had begun to speak to her of his love, but Eloise had placed her hand kindly upon his lips and told him to say no further, for they had always been, and always would be, brother and sister. So Ludwig never spoke his love after that, and Eloise and he were as brother and sister. But the love of her grew always within him, and he had no thought but of her. And now, when Eloise and Herman were wed, Ludwig feigned that he had received a message from a rich relative in a distant part of the kingdom, bidding him come thither. And Ludwig went from the village, and was seen there no more. 
When the burgomaster died, all his possessions went to Herman and Eloise, and they were accounted the richest folk in the province, and so good and charitable were they that they were beloved by all. Meanwhile, Herman had risen to greatness in the army, for by his valorous exploits he had become a general, and he was much endeared to the king. And Eloise and Herman lived in a great castle in the midst of a beautiful park, and the people came and paid them reverence there. And no one in all these years spoke of Ludwig. No one thought of him. Ludwig was forgotten. And so the years went by. It came to pass, however, that from a far distant province there spread the fame of a musician so great that the king sent for him to visit the court. No one knew the musician's name nor whence he came, for he lived alone and would never speak of himself. But his music was so tender and beautiful that it was called heart music, and he himself was called the master. He was old and bowed with infirmities, but his music was always of youth and love. It touched every heart with its simplicity and pathos, and all wondered how this old and broken man could create so much of tenderness and sweetness on these themes. But when the king sent for the master to come to court, the master returned him answer, No, I am old and feeble. To leave my home would weary me unto death. Let me die here as I have lived these long years, weaving my music for hearts that need my solace. Then the people wondered. But the king was not angry. In pity he sent the master a purse of gold, and bade him come or not come as he willed. Such honor had never before been shown any subject in the kingdom, and all the people were dumb with amazement. But the master gave the purse of gold to the poor of the village wherein he lived. In those days Herman died, full of honors and years, and there was a great lamentation in the land, for Herman was beloved by all, and Eloise wept unceasingly and would not be comforted. On the seventh day after Herman had been buried, there came to the castle in the park an aged and bowed man who carried in his white and trembling hands a violin. His kindly face was deeply wrinkled, and a venerable beard swept down upon his breast. He was weary and footsore, but he heeded not the words of pity bestowed on him by all who beheld him tottering on his way. He knocked boldly at the castle gate and demanded to be brought into the presence of Eloise. And Eloise said, Bid him enter, perchance his music will comfort my breaking heart. Then when the old man had come into her presence, behold, he was the master. I, the master whose fame was in every land, whose heart music was on every tongue. If thou art indeed the master, said Eloise, let thy music be balm to my chastened spirit. The master said, I, Eloise, I will comfort thee in thy sorrow, and thy heart shall be stayed, and a great joy will come to thee. Then the master drew his bow across the strings, and lo, forthwith there arose such harmonies as Eloise had never heard before. Gently, persuasively, they stole upon her senses and filled her soul with an ecstasy of peace. Is it Herman that speaks to me? cried Eloise. It is his voice I hear, and it speaks to me of love. With thy heart music, O master, all the sweetness of his life comes back to comfort me. The master did not pause. As he played, it seemed as if each tender word and caress of Herman's life was stealing back on music's pinions to soothe the wounds that death had made. It is the song of our love life, murmured Eloise. How full of memories it is! What tenderness and harmony! And oh, what 
peace it brings. But tell me, master, what means this minor chord, this undertone of sadness and a pathos that flows like a deep, unfathomable current throughout it all, and wailing weaves itself about thy theme of love and happiness with its weird and subtle influences? Then the master said, It is that shade of sorrow and sacrifice, O Eloise, that ever makes the picture of love more glorious. An undertone of pathos has been my part in all these years to symmetrize the love of Hermon and Eloise. The song of thy love is beautiful, and who shall say it is not beautified by the sad undertone of Ludwig's broken heart? Thou art Ludwig, cried Eloise. Thou art Ludwig, who didst love me, and hast come to comfort me who loved thee not. The master indeed was Ludwig, but when they hastened to do him homage, he heard them not, for with that last and sweetest heart song, his head sank upon his breast, and he was dead. I've been wanting to fit this next one in for a while, and thought it'd make a great piece for our Valentine's Day extravaganza. I thought it was simply delightful. Mr. Whiting and Marianne By Richard Marsh I did not mean to kiss her. It was a pure accident. Her face was close to mine, or my face was close to hers, and then her lips came into contact with my lips, or my lips came into contact with her lips. I don't know which it was. And then at that moment, her mother came into the room, and she said, Mr. Whiting, may I ask what is the meaning of this? I said it meant nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. Only I found it difficult to explain. And when I did explain, she would not understand. Her manner was not at all the sort of thing I care for. The result is that I am engaged to Marianne Snelling without being conscious of having entertained any intention of the kind. Not that I have a word to say against Marianne, except that I never knew a girl with quite so many relations. To begin with, she had six brothers and five sisters, and she is the eldest of the batch, and there's not one of the brothers whom I feel drawn to. Her father is a most remarkable person, to say the least. After they had arranged between them that I was engaged to Marianne, I was really not allowed to have a voice in the matter, her father remarked with a pointed air, which I cannot but think under the circumstances was unusual, that he thought it was about time that I did come to the scratch, and that if I had kept on dilly-dallying much longer, he would have had a word to say to me of a kind. I do not know what he meant, and would rather not attempt to imagine but it is quite plain to me that all the arrangements for my wedding are going to be made by the Snellings. I do not know when it is going to be, but it will be either next week or the week after, certainly at the earliest possible moment, and I shouldn't be at all surprised to learn that all Marianne's things had already been bought 
and perhaps some of them marked. We are to live in a house which belongs to a cousin of Mr. Snelling. It is to be furnished by a brother of Mrs. Snelling. The house linen is to be supplied by the father of the young man to whom Jane Matilda is engaged, and the ironmongery by the uncle to whom George Frederick is apprenticed. All, apparently, that is left for me to do is to pay for everything. It is most delightful. It might just as well be someone else's wedding, so unimportant is the part which I am set to play in it. And it is all the result of an accident. I deny that for the last six months I have been using Mr. Snelling's home as if it were a boarding house. Nothing of the kind. The mere suggestion is absurd. It is true that I have dropped in to dinner now and then, or to spend the evening, or for an afternoon call, or for an hour or two in the morning. But that has been simply and solely because the Snelling family have evinced so marked a desire for my society. The alteration which has taken place in their demeanor since my accident with Marianne is therefore all the more amazing. For instance, look at their behavior in the matter of the ring. The accident in question occurred upon the Sunday evening. I had been with Marianne to church and had seen her home and had had a little supper, and it was after supper that it happened. I did not go and purchase the engagement ring the first thing on the Monday morning, I own it. Certainly not. Nor did I take any steps in that direction during the whole of that week. I was not pressed for time. Besides, I was turning things over in my mind. But that was no reason why, the Monday week following, four of her brothers should have called on me on their way to the office, when I was scarcely out of bed and actually breakfasting, and assailed me in the way in which they did. There was William Henry, John Frank, Ferdinand Augustus, and Stephen Arthur, each of them twice my size, and all of them frightfully ignorant and wholly regardless of the sensitive little points of those with whom they came in contact. There is no circumlocution about them. They go straight at what they want, and were scarcely inside my door before they blurted out the purport of their coming. It was Frederick Augustus. If the thing is possible, he is, if anything, more direct even than the rest of his family. Look here, Whiting, how about Marianne's ring? The girl is fretting, but you don't seem to notice it. And as you don't appear to know what is the proper thing to do in a case of this kind, and don't understand that the ring ought to be bought straight away, we've bought it for you. I gasped, positively gasped. Am I to understand that you've purchased my engagement ring? That's it, on your account, from a cousin of ours who's in that line. I never saw people like the Snellings for possessing relatives in all sorts of lines. No matter what you want or do not want and never will want, they are sure to have some relative who has dealt in it his or her whole life long. They produced the ring and told me what I had to pay for it. A handsome price it was. I was persuaded that somebody besides that cousin got a profit out of Marianne's engagement ring. But I handed over the amount. I did not want any unpleasantness, and I am quite sure there would have been unpleasantness had I demurred. Later in the day, I took it with me when I went to call on Marianne. She appeared to be surprised almost into speechlessness when I presented it to her. Her head dropped on my shoulder, and she kissed me under the chin, observing, You dear old Sam. The moments when I am alone with Marianne are alleviations for those more frequent moments when I am not alone with Marianne. Still, I noticed that the ring fitted her perfectly, and I could not but wonder if she had tried it on before. At the same time, I am beginning to be comforted by a suspicion that Marianne is on my side. On my side, that is, as against the rest of her family. 
There has been a difference of opinion as to where we are to spend our honeymoon. It is from her action in that matter that my suspicion springs. The Snellings have an aunt who lives in an out-of-the-way hole at the other end of nowhere. The woman's name is Brady. There she owns a cottage, or it may be a pigsty, for all I know. When she heard of my engagement with Marianne, she wrote and suggested that we should spend our honeymoon in her cottage, or pigsty, and that I should pay her rent for it. The matter was talked about at dinner. Marianne was silent for some time, then she quietly remarked, Don't trouble yourselves to discuss Aunt Brady's proposal. I shall do nothing of the kind. This observation was followed by perfect silence. The members of the family looked at one another. But after a very considerable pause, her mother said, with quite unusual mildness, Very well, my dear. Then it's settled. After dinner, I took advantage of an opportunity which offered to thank Marianne for her action in the matter, because, of course, I had no wish to spend my honeymoon in a place of which I knew nothing, to oblige an aunt of whom I knew still less. Marianne beamed at me, and she said, You dear old man. Presently, she continued, Do you know that in marrying me you are doing the best thing for yourself that you ever did in all your life? I endeavored to explain to her that I felt sure of it, but I fear that my explanation was a little stumbling. But she went on with the most perfect fluency. There were no signs of faltering about her flow of language. You want someone who can look after you, and you could not by any chance have chosen a person who will look after you better than I shall. Such an assurance was most satisfactory. We had a long, confidential chat on matters of business. I found that as a woman of business, she was beyond all my expectations. I told her exactly what my income was, and the source from which it came, and all about it. She drew up a plan on which we were to lay it out. It was an admirable plan. I had never had one, but I saw clearly in that way the money would go twice as far. It turned out that she had a little money of her own, about a hundred and thirty pounds a year. And of course, I had my expectations, and she had hers. It was plain that together we should manage most comfortably, delightfully, in fact. On the subject of wedding presents, too, her ideas were the most lucid I ever yet encountered. It was wonderful to listen to her, really wonderful. I shall make Papa give me five hundred pounds at least. A bird in the hand is worth two in a bush, and it will be something to have by us. I quite agreed with her remarks about the bird in the hand, and it certainly will be something to have by us. I know what Mama can afford to give, and I will see she gives it and I will see that there is no shirking about the boys, or about the girls, either. I will take care that my relations do their duty. I have drawn up a list of all the people who ought to give us a present, and I shall tell them what they ought to give. It won't be my fault if I don't get it. Of course, there are some people with whom you can't be perfectly plain, but I shall be as plain as I can. There is a way and a manner of doing that kind of thing. I have no intention of being presented with an endless collection of duplicates or a lot of useless rubbish which I don't know what to do with. If you take my advice, you will follow in my footsteps. I endeavored to. At least I drew up a list of people who ought to meet the occasion, and I tried in more than one instance to drop a hint of what, as I felt, they ought to meet it with. But I am bound to admit that so far my success has been as nothing compared with hers. Hers has been prodigious. It is certain that we have a large collection of really valuable property about the house, the wedding presents to Marianne. She has a knack of getting people to do what she wishes and to give her what she wants, which is a little short of miraculous. A singular feature about the situation is that people are actually beginning to pity me. 
to sympathize with me for being about to marry Marianne. I notice that they are generally persons who have already tendered their offerings. The fact of having given Marianne a wedding present seems to fill them with a feeling of rancorous acidity, which to me is inexplicable. My belief is that they have been induced to spend at least twice as much as they intended, and that they resent it. Such is the selfishness of human nature. But why on that account they should pity me, I altogether fail to understand. We have all been giving Marianne presents, and I suppose you, Mr. Whiting, have been giving her something too. That was what Mrs. McPherson said to me only the other day. I have given Marianne two or three trifles, and I said so. And what, inquired Mrs. McPherson, has Marianne given you? Her love. Someone sniggered. I cannot pretend to explain why, except on the supposition that romance is dead, at least in that circle of society in which the Snellings move. But that is not the only society the world contains. As a matter of fact, Marianne has given me a pair of slippers, worked by her own hands. It is true that they are a trifle large for me, and that I shall never be able to keep them on my feet except when I am sitting still, but Marianne does not seem to think that that matters, so why should I? Her youngest sister, Clara Louisa, has quite gratuitously informed me that she has had them by her for some considerable time, and that, not to put too fine a point on it, they were originally designed for another individual altogether, a Mr. Pillbeam. But even supposing that what Clara Louisa says is true, of which I have no evidence, I have surely cause to congratulate myself on standing literally in Mr. Pillbeam's shoes, even if they are a little spacious. On the whole, I do not know that I regret that accident I had with Marianne. It is true that there are times when I am a little disposed to wish that she were not quite so good a manager. Now and then every man likes to call his soul his own. On the other hand, she is well qualified to protect me from the rest of the family. She will keep them at bay. Because it is beginning to dawn on me that single-handed she is more than a match for them all. Which is just as well. If she had been like me, they would have rent us limb from limb. As it is, unless I am mistaken, some of the rending will be on our side. And they know it. P.S. The cards are out for the wedding. It is to take place on Tuesday fortnight. We are going for our honeymoon to Italy and the south of France. A second cousin of Marianne's is in the Cook's Tours line. He has given us free passes all the way to the end of our journey and all the way back again, and coupons for free board and lodging at the hotel. It's a wedding present. So that, as Marianne says, our honeymoon need cost us practically nothing. Besides which, we can always sell the coupons and railway passes which we don't use. Nothing could be more delightful. And now it is my pleasure to bring you a lovely story by Henry Coiler Bunner, narrated by my dear friend and colleague, Avon Shore without the chickens. I am so thrilled to have her on the Marazine, and to my great delight, this will certainly not be the last we hear of her. Let's join Avon and read some letters. Some love letters. The Love Letters of Smith by Henry Kyler Bunner.
When the little seamstress had climbed to her room in the story over the top story of the great brick tenement house in which she lived, she was quite tired out. If you do not understand what a story over a top story is, you must remember that there are no limits to human greed, and hardly any to the height of tenement houses. When the man who owned that seven-story tenement found that he could rent another floor, he found no difficulty in persuading the guardians of our building laws to let him clap another story on the roof, like a cabin on the deck of a ship. And in the southeasterly of the four apartments on this floor, the little seamstress lived. You could just see the top of her window from the street. The huge cornice that had capped the original front, and that served as her windowsill now, quite hid all the lower part of the story on top of the top story. The little seamstress was scarcely thirty years old, but she was such an old-fashioned little body in so many of her looks and ways that I had almost spelled her seamstress after the fashion of our grandmothers. She had been a comely body, too, and would have been still, if she had not been thin and pale and anxious-eyed. She was tired out tonight because she had been working hard all day for a lady who lived far up in the new wards beyond Harlem River, and after the long journey home, she had to climb seven flights of tenement house stairs. She was too tired, both in body and in mind, to cook the two little chops she had brought home. She would save them for breakfast, she thought. So she made herself a cup of tea on the miniature stove and ate a slice of dry bread with it. It was too much trouble to make toast. But after dinner, she watered her flowers. She was never too tired for that. And the six pots of geraniums that caught the south sun on the top of the cornice did their best to repay her. Then she sat down in her rocking chair by the window and looked out. Her airie was high above all the other buildings, and she could look across some low roofs opposite and see the further end of Tompkins Square, with its sparse spring green showing faintly through the dusk. The eternal roar of the city floated up to her and vaguely troubled her. She was a country girl, and although she had lived for ten years in New York, she had never grown used to that ceaseless murmur. Tonight she felt the languor of the new season as well as the heaviness of physical exhaustion. She was almost too tired to go to bed. She thought of the hard day done and the hard day to be begun after the night spent on the hard little bed. She thought of the peaceful days in the country when she taught school in the Massachusetts village where she was born. She thought of a hundred small slights that she had to bear from people better fed than bread. She thought of the sweet green fields that she rarely saw nowadays. She thought of the long journey forth and back that must begin and end her morrow's work, and she wondered if her employer would think to offer to pay her fare. Then she pulled herself together. She must think of more agreeable things, or she could not sleep. And as the only agreeable things she had to think about were her flowers, she looked at the garden on top of the cornice. A peculiar gritting sound made her look down, and she saw a cylindrical object that glittered in the twilight, advancing in an irregular and uncertain manner toward her flower pots. Looking closer, she saw that it was a pewter beer mug, which somebody in the next apartment was pushing with a two-foot rule. On top of the beer mug was a piece of paper, and on this paper was written, in a sprawling, half-formed hand, Porter, please excuse the liberty, and drink it. The seamstress started up in terror and shut the window. She remembered that there was a man in the next apartment, 
She had seen him on the stairs, on Sundays. He seemed a grave, decent person, but he must be drunk. She sat down on her bed, all a tremble. Then she reasoned with herself. The man was drunk, that was all. He probably would not annoy her further. And if he did, she had only to retreat to Mrs. Mulvaney's apartment in the rear, and Mr. Mulvaney, who was a highly respectable man and worked in a boiler shop, would protect her. So, being a poor woman who had already had occasion to excuse and refuse two or three liberties of like sort, she made up her mind to go to bed like a reasonable seamstress, and she did. She was rewarded, for when her light was out, she could see in the moonlight that the two-foot rule appeared again, with one joint bent back, hitched itself into the mug handle, and withdrew the mug. The next day was a hard one for the little seamstress, and she hardly thought of the affair of the night before, until the same hour had come around again, and she sat once more by her window. Then she smiled at the remembrance. Poor fellow, she said in her charitable heart. I've no doubt he's awfully ashamed of it now. Perhaps he was never tipsy before. Perhaps he didn't know there was a lone woman in here to be frightened. Just then she heard a gritting sound. She looked down. The pewter pot was in front of her, and the two-foot rule was slowly retiring. On the pot was a piece of paper, and on the paper was, Porter, good for the health, it makes meat. This time the little seamstress shut her window with a bang of indignation. The color rose to her pale cheeks. She thought that she would go down to see the janitor at once. Then she remembered the seven flights of stairs, and she resolved to see the janitor in the morning. Then she went to bed and saw the mug drawn back just as it had been drawn back the night before. The morning came, but somehow the seamstress did not care to complain to the janitor. She hated to make trouble, and the janitor might think, and, and, well, if the wretch did it again, she would speak to him herself, and that would settle it. And so on the next night, which was a Thursday, the little seamstress sat down by her window, resolved to settle the matter. And she had not sat there long, rocking in the creaking little rocking chair which she had brought with her from her old home, when the pewter pot hove in sight with a piece of paper on the top. This time the legend read, Perhaps you are a frad, I will address you, I am not that kind. The seamstress did not quite know whether to laugh or to cry, but she felt that the time had come for speech. She leaned out of her window and addressed the twilight heaven. Mr. Mr. Sir? I, will you please put your head out of the window so that I can speak to you? The silence of the other room was undisturbed. The seamstress drew back, blushing. But before she could nerve herself for another attack, a piece of paper appeared on the end of the two-foot rule. When I say a thing, I mean it. I have said I would not address you, and I will not. What was the little seamstress to do? She stood by the window and thought hard about it. Should she complain to the janitor? But the creature was perfectly respectful. No doubt he meant to be kind. He certainly was kind to waste these pots of porter on her. She remembered the last time, and the first, that she had drunk porter. It was at home, when she was a young girl, after she had had the diphtheria. She remembered how good it was, and how it had given her back her strength. 
and without one thought of what she was doing, she lifted the pot of porter and took one little reminiscent sip, two little reminiscent sips, and became aware of her utter fall and defeat. She blushed now as she had never blushed before, put the pot down, closed the window, and fled to her bed like a deer to the woods. And when the porter arrived the next night, bearing the simple appeal, don't be afraid of it, drink it all. The little seamstress arose and grasped the pot firmly by the handle and poured its contents over the earth around her largest geranium. She poured the contents out to the last drop, and then she dropped the pot and ran back and sat on her bed and cried, with her face hid in her hands. Now, she said to herself, you've done it, and you're just as nasty and hard-hearted and suspicious and mean as, as puzzly and she wept to think of her hardness of heart. He will never give me a chance to say I am sorry, she thought. And really, she might have spoken kindly to the poor man and told him that she was much obliged to him, but that he really mustn't ask her to drink porter with him. But it's all over and done now, she said to herself as she sat at her window on Saturday night. And then she looked at the cornice and saw the faithful little pewter pot traveling slowly toward her. She was conquered. This act of Christian forbearance was too much for her kindly spirit. She read the inscription on the paper. Porter is good for flowers, but better for folks. And she lifted the pot to her lips, which were not half so red as her cheeks, and took a good, hearty, grateful draft. She sipped in thoughtful silence after this first plunge, and presently she was surprised to find the bottom of the pot in full view. On the table at her side, a few pearl buttons were screwed up in a bit of white paper. She untwisted the paper and smoothed it out, and wrote in a tremulous hand. She could write a very neat hand. Thanks. This she laid on the top of the pot, and in a moment, the bent two-foot rule appeared and drew the mail carriage home. Then she sat still, enjoying the warm glow of the porter which seemed to have permeated her entire being with a heat that was not at all like the unpleasant and oppressive heat of the atmosphere, an atmosphere heavy with the spring damp. A gritting on the tin aroused her. A piece of paper lay under her eyes. Fine growing weather, Smith, it said. Now it is unlikely that in the whole round and range of conversational commonplaces, there was one other greeting that could have induced the seamstress to continue the exchange of communications. But this simple and homely phrase touched her country heart. What did growing weather matter to the toilers in this waste of brick and mortar? This stranger must be, like herself, a country-bred soul, longing for the new green and the upturned brown mold of the country fields. She took up the paper and wrote under the first message, fine, but that seemed curt, for she added, for, what, she did not know. At last, in desperation, she put down potatoes. The piece of paper was withdrawn and came back with an addition, too missed for potatoes. And when the little seamstress had read this and grasped the fact that M-I-S-T represented the writer's pronunciation of moist, she laughed softly to herself. A man whose mind, at such a time, was seriously bent upon potatoes was not a man to be feared. She found a half sheet of notepaper and wrote, 
I lived in a small village before I came to New York, but I am afraid I do not know much about farming. Are you a farmer? The answer came, have been most everything farmed a spell in Maine, Smith. As she read this, the seamstress heard a church clock strike nine. Bless me, is it so late, she cried, and she hurriedly penciled good night, thrust the paper out, and closed the window. But a few minutes later, passing by, she saw yet another bit of paper on the cornice, fluttering in the evening breeze. It said only good night, and after a moment's hesitation, the little seamstress took it in and gave it shelter. After this, they were the best of friends. Every evening, the pot appeared, and while the seamstress drank from it at her window, Mr. Smith drank from its twin at his, and notes were exchanged as rapidly as Mr. Smith's early education permitted. They told each other their histories, and Mr. Smith's was one of travel and variety, which he seemed to consider quite a matter of course. He had followed the sea, he had farmed, he had been a logger and a hunter in the Maine woods. Now he was foreman of an East River lumber yard, and he was prospering. In a year or two, he would have enough laid by to go home to Bucksport and buy a share in a shipbuilding business. All this dribbled out in the course of a jerky but variegated correspondence, in which autobiographic details were mixed with reflections, moral and philosophical. A few samples will give an idea of Mr. Smith's style. I was one trip to Van Demmen's land, to which the seamstress replied, it must have been very interesting. But Mr. Smith disposed of this subject very briefly. It warn't. Further, he vouchsafed, I seen a Chinese cook in Hong Kong who cook flapjacks like your mother. A missionary that sells rum is the menace of God's creatures. A bullfit is not what it is crocked up to be. I am six one three quarter, but my father was six foot four. The seamstress had taught school one winter, and she could not refrain from making an attempt to reform Mr. Smith's orthography. One evening, in answer to this communication, I killed a bar in Maine six hundred pounds white. She wrote, isn't it generally spelled bear? But she gave up the attempt when he responded, a bar is a Maine animal any way you spell him. The spring wore on and the summer came, and still the evening drink and the evening correspondence brightened the close of each day for the little seamstress, and the draft of Porter put her to sleep each night, giving her a calmer rest than she had ever known during her stay in the noisy city. And it began, moreover, to make a little meat for her. And then the thought that she was going to have an hour of pleasant companionship somehow gave her courage to cook and eat her little dinner, however tired she was. The seamstress's cheeks began to blossom with the June roses. And all this time, Mr. Smith kept his vow of silence unbroken, though the seamstress sometimes tempted him with little ejaculations and exclamations to which he might have responded. He was silent and invisible. Only the smoke of his pipe and the clink of his mug as he set it down on the cornice told her that a living, material Smith was her correspondent. They never met on the stairs, for their hours of coming and going did not coincide. Once or twice they passed each other in the street, but Mr. Smith looked straight ahead of him, about a foot over her head. The little seamstress thought he was a very fine-looking man, with his six feet one and three quarters and his thick brown beard. Most people would have called him plain. Once she spoke to him, 
She was coming home one summer evening, and a gang of corner loafers stopped her and demanded money to buy beer, as is their custom. Before she had time to be frightened, Mr. Smith appeared, whence she knew not, scattered the gang like chaff, and, coloring two of the human hyenas, kicked them with deliberate, ponderous, alternate kicks until they writhed in ineffable agony. When he let them crawl away, she turned to him and thanked him warmly, looking very pretty now with the color in her cheeks. But Mr. Smith answered no word. He stared over her head, grew red in the face, and fidgeted nervously, but held his peace. And so the summer went on, and the two correspondents chatted silently from window to window, hid from sight of all the world below by the friendly cornice. And they looked out over the roof and saw the green of Tompkins Square grow darker and dustier as the months went on. Mr. Smith was given to Sunday trips into the suburbs, and he never came back without a bunch of daisies or black-eyed Susans or, later, asters or goldenrod for the little seamstress. Sometimes, with a sagacity rare in his sex, he brought her a whole plant with fresh loam for potting. He also gave her a reel in a bottle, which, he wrote, he had made, M-A-I-D, himself, and some coral and a dried flying fish that was somehow fearful to look upon with its sword-like fins and its hollow eyes. At first, she could not go to sleep with that flying fish hanging on the wall. But he surprised the little seamstress very much one cool September evening when he shoved this letter along the cornice. Respected and honored madam, having long and vainly sought an opportunity to convey to you the expression of my sentiments, I now avail myself of the privilege of epistolary communication to acquaint you with the fact that the emotions which you have raised in my breast are those which point to connubial love and affection rather than to simple friendship. In short, madam, I have the honor to approach you with a proposal, the acceptance of which will fill me with ecstatic gratitude and enable me to extend to you those protecting leases which the matrimonial bond makes at once the duty and the privilege of him who would, at no distant date, lead to the hymeneal altar one whose charms and virtues should suffice to kindle its flames without extraneous aid. I remain, dear madam, your humble servant and ardent adorer, J. Smith. The little seamstress gazed at this letter a long time. Perhaps she was wondering in what ready letter writer of the last century Mr. Smith had found his form. Perhaps she was amazed at the results of his first attempt at punctuation. Perhaps she was thinking of something else, for there were tears in her eyes and a smile on her small mouth. But it must have been a long time, and Mr. Smith must have grown nervous, for presently another communication came along the line where the top of the cornice was worn smooth. It read, If not understood, will you marry me? The little seamstress seized a piece of paper and wrote, If I say yes, will you speak to me? Then she rose and passed it out to him, leaning out of the window, and their faces met. I enjoyed that so much, I already can't wait to have her back. This last piece is a look at Love Departed, and maybe even a little vindictive. 
The Lady and the Ghost by Rose Cecil O'Neill It was some moments before the lady became rationally convinced that there was something occurring in the corner of the room, and then the actual nature of the thing was still far from clear. To put it as mildly as possible, she murmured, the thing verges upon the uncanny. And, leaning forward upon her silken knees, she attended upon the phenomenon. At first, it had seemed like some faint and unexplained atmospheric derangement, occasioned apparently neither by an opened window nor by a door. Some papers fluttered to the floor, the fringes of the hanging softly waved, and indeed it would still have been easy to dismiss the matter as the effect of a vagrant draft had not the state of things suddenly grown unmistakably unusual. All of the air of the room, it then appeared, rushed even with violence to the point, and there underwent what impressed her as an aerial convulsion, in the very midst and wellspring of which, so great was the confusion, there seemed to appear at intervals almost the semblance of a shape. The silence of the room was disturbed by a book that flew open with fluttering leaves, the noise of a vase of violets blown over, from which the perfumed water dripped to the floor, and soft touchings all around, as of a breeze passing through a chamber full of trifles. The ringlets of the lady's hair were swept forward toward the corner upon which her gaze was fixed, and in which the conditions had now grown so tense with imminent occurrence and so rent with some inconceivable throw that she involuntarily rose, and stepping forward against the pressure of her petticoats, which were blown about her ankles, she impatiently thrust her hand into the... She was immediately aware that another hand had received it, though with a far from substantial envelopment, and for another moment what she saw before her trembled between something and nothing. Then from the precarious situation there slowly emerged into dubious view the shape of a young man dressed in evening clothes, over which was flung a mantle of voluminous folds such as is worn by ghosts of fashion. The very deuce was in it, he complained. I thought I should never materialize. She flung herself into her chair, confounded. Yet even in the shock of the emergency, true to herself, she did not fail to smooth her ruffled locks. Her visitor had been scanning his person in a dissatisfied way, and with some vexation he now ejaculated, Beg your pardon, my dear, but are my feet on the floor, or where in thunder are they? It was with a tone of reassurance that she confessed that his patent leathers were the trivial matter of two or three inches from the rug. Whereupon, with still another effort, he brought himself down until his feet rested decently upon the floor. It was only when he walked about to examine the bric-a-brac that a suspicious lightness was discernible in his tread. When he had composed himself by the survey, affecting it with an air of great insouciance, which, however, failed to conceal the fact that his heart was beating somewhat wildly, he approached the lady. Well, here we are again, my love, he cried, and devoured her hands with ghostly kisses. It seems an eternity that I've been struggling back to you through the outer void and what not. Sometimes, I confess, I all but despaired. Life is not, I assure you, all beer and skittles for the disembodied. He drew a long breath, and his gaze upon her and the entire chamber seemed to envelop all and cherish it. Little room, little room, and so you are thus. Do you know, he continued with vivacity, I have wondered about it in the grave, and I could hardly sleep for this place unpenetrated. 
Hi-ho, what a lot of things we leave undone. I dashed this off at the time, the literary passion strong in me, thus. Now, when all is done, and I lie so low, I cannot sleep for this, my only care. For though of that dim place I could not know, that where my heart was fain I did not go, nor saw you musing there. Well, well, these things irk a ghost so. Naturally, as soon as possible, I made my way back to be satisfied, to be satisfied that you were still mine. He bent a piercing look upon her. I observe by the calendar on your writing table that some years have elapsed since my, um, since I expired, he added with a faint blush. It appears that the matter of their dissolution is in conversation rather kept in the background by well-bred ghosts. Hi-ho, how time does fly! You'll be joining me soon, my dear. She drew herself splendidly up, and he was aware of her beauty in the full of its tenacious excellence, of the delicate insolence of life looking upon death, of the fact that she had forgotten him. He rose and confronted this, his trembling hands thrust into his pockets, then turned away to hide the dismay of his countenance. He was, however, a spook of considerable spirit, and in a jiffy he met the occasion. To her blank, indignant gaze, he drew a card from his case, and, taking a pencil from the secretary, wrote beneath the name, Quiet to the breast, wheresoe'er it be, that gave an hour's rest to the heart of me. Quiet to the breast, till it lieth dead, and the heart be clay where I visited. Quiet to the breast, though forgetting quite the guest it sheltered once. To the heart, good night. Handing her the card, he bowed, and through force of habit turned to the door, forgetting that his ghostly pressure would not turn the knob. As the door did not open, with a sigh of recollection for his spiritual condition, he prepared to disappear, casting one last look at the faithless lady. She was still looking at the card in her hand, and the tears ran down her face. She has remembered, he reflected. How courteous! For a moment, it seemed he could contain his disappointment, discreetly removing himself now at what he felt was the vanishing point, with the customary reticence of the dead. But feeling overcame him. In an instant he had her in his arms, and was pouring out his love, his reproaches, the story of his longing, his doubts, his discontent, and his desperate journey back to earth for a sight of her. And ah, cried he, picture my agony at finding that you had forgotten. And yet I surmised it in the gloom. I divined it by my restlessness and my despair. Perhaps some lines that occurred to me will suggest the thing to you. You recall my old knack for versification? Where the grasses weep o'er his darkling bed, and the glow-worms creep, lies the weary head of one laid deep who cannot sleep, the unremembered dead. He took a chair beside her, and spoke of their old love for each other, of his fealty through all transmutations, incidentally of her beauty, of her cruelty, of the light of her face which had illumined his darksome way to her, and a lot of other things, and the lady bowed her head and wept. The hours of the night passed thus. The moon waned, and a pallor began to tinge the dusky cheek of the east, but the eloquence of the visitor still flowed on, and the lady had his misty hands clasped to her reawakened bosom. At last a suspicion of rosiness touched the curtain. He abruptly rose. I cannot hold out against the morning, he said. It is time all good ghosts were in bed. 
but she threw herself on her knees before him, clasping his ethereal waist with a despairing embrace. Oh, do not leave me, she cried, or my love will kill me. He bent eagerly above her. Say it again. Convince me. I love you, she cried, again and again and again, with such an anguish of sincerity as would convince the most skeptical spook that ever revisited the glimpses of the moon. You will forget again, he said. I shall never forget, she cried. My life will henceforth be one continual remembrance of you, one long act of devotion to your memory, one oblation, one unceasing penitence, one agony of waiting. He lifted her face and saw that it was true. Well, said he, gracefully wrapping his cloak about him, well, now I shall have a little peace. He kissed her with a certain jaunty grace upon her hair and prepared to dissolve while he lightly tapped a tattoo upon his leg with the dove-colored gloves he carried. Goodbye, my dear, he said. Henceforth I shall sleep a nights. My heart is quite at rest. But mine is breaking, she wailed, madly trying once more to clasp his vanishing form. He threw her a kiss from his misty fingertips, and all that remained with her besides her broken heart was a faint disturbance of the air. Thank you all for going on this date with me. And a big special thank you to Avon for delighting our earbones. Be sure to join us next week for a positively mesmerizing issue, courtesy of our old friend Edgar Allan Poe. Until then, I hope everyone has a wonderful Valentine's Day. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayor Zine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.